with you in every way but one. I'm sorry that, uh, as I know you are, Pastor Brandon is sick, but other than that, uh, it is a delight for me to be with you. Uh, this is my first time at the bridge. Uh, thank you. And, uh, but I've heard much about the bridge and uh, know your pastor and I'm so thankful for both uh, your pastor's ministry in our city and for the ministry of the bridge in the city. We, uh, I, uh, I'm uh, tied up with City Life downtown and uh, we consider one of our strong partner sister churches the bridge. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that we're committed to uh, is uh, like-minded churches coming together in Jesus Christ uh, in union as true brothers and sisters and in union in ministry and witness in our city. And uh, we hope that more and more the Lord is going to do this. So it's, uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, I'm, uh, again, so thankful for your church, for your ministry. Uh, what a delight to... Uh, to be here, we, uh, we give God thanks for all that he uh, is doing among us. And I trust that uh, the word today uh, will minister to you. We, we believe in a powerful word and a powerful Holy Spirit who has long ago inspired the text and in these days illumines the text and speaks to us. So the important thing is to... Hear God speak to you through his word. Who the preacher is, uh, and I appreciate the in worship leadership we heard a bit about that, who the preacher is is not all that important, uh, especially if the preacher seeks to be faithful to the text in the power of the Spirit. Uh, but what's really powerful is when God speaks to you. And frankly, you, you know, uh, there, there's some responsibility for the pastor. I don't want to weasel out of this, but American Christianity has put it all on the pastor, basically, when I think the New Testament puts much more of it on you. Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. You have great responsibility in hearing the word of God coming from the preacher. It's not the preacher's responsibility to, uh, to bring it right home and to apply You know, some people say, apply it to my life. Well, Everybody here has a different life. And uh, uh, I don't have the power, no human preacher has the power to apply it to all of your lives. And even if he or she did, they wouldn't have time to preach 100 sermons because they'd all be different. But the word comes to you in the power of the Spirit and God speaks. And so hopefully this morning uh, we're, uh, we're all of us uh, listening to what God might be saying to us. So again, it is, it is so good to be with you, and uh, I hope this is the first of a number of times when uh, I get to be with you. Uh, we thank God. Together now, Lord, we ask that your word would be our sole guide, your spirit, our sole teacher. And your glory and our transformation, our dual purpose. Amen. Well, some might say it's a little silly, 
and it may well be, but it's kind of fun, and I think it can be edifying. Uh, if you were going to be on a desert island, and you could only have one passage, not even a whole chapter, but one passage of Scripture, what would it be? I don't know if you ever thought about that. Uh, not even necessarily my favorite passage, but if I could only have one biblical text with me on a desert island, what would it be? Anybody want to shout out anything uh, in quick thinking? Matthew 5, Matthew five but now that, that's a long one. We might say, just take, what's that? Uh, of, of Matthew 5. Okay, a beatitude and uh, a witness text, huh? Good, good. Romans 9, good. You have to take a part of that, but that's okay. That's good enough. If you can get it to a chapter, I'd say that's pretty good. Uh, anybody else want to throw out something? Ah, there's a good one. Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford's favorite biblical passage. What's, someone came over here? 1 Corinthians 9.24. Great. That's your favorite verse, apparently. Anything else? Um, I'm going to suggest, not, this is not my choice, but I'm going to suggest that one that wouldn't be a bad choice... Uh, and some people would make their choice, make this their choice, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. And uh, it's important for you to have that text before you now. So if you need to go on your phone to pull it up, which more and more people are, uh, have a Bible, get, but I, I would really encourage and even ask you to have that text in front of you for the rest of our time together. And keep looking at the text, because it's so important that pastors preach from the text. Uh, and you know about the Bereans in Acts 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. That's where we're going to start. Uh, and uh, the Bereans in Acts 17, uh, Luke writes, were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they listened to what Paul preached and they checked it out by Scripture. So... We, all, we always need to listen and look at the text. And one of the hardest things to do in this day and age is to get people to get into the text and stay in the text. So get into that text, stay in the text, watch the text, and make sure whatever's being said really comes from the text. There's a lot of people say, well, the Bible says, and then they, they, they say something. So you ask, okay, now, where does the Bible say that? They might be able to give you a text. And if they do, you go to the text and you look and you ask yourself the question, as you look at the text and scrutinize that text, does the text really say what he, she says it says? Because it's so important to hear uh, the word. Uh, every book of the New Testament, I think you can, a couple of them, it's a, you, have to, you have to stretch just a bit, but every book in the New Testament has in its background false teaching. The Christian movement is a movement that has to be taught and teaching and truth are so essential to our movement. And again, this is one of the things that the American church has almost lost completely. The teaching of the Word of God uh, in community as brothers and sisters in the power of the Spirit. 
So I'm going to read this text, and please, uh, please watch and listen for God to speak to you. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us, because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not a bad passage. The word of God for the people of God. Not a bad passage for the desert island, right? And that passage obviously has so much in it, it's a series. Uh, so I'm just going to be able to focus on a little bit of it, but... As we focus on a little bit of it, uh, I hope this week you will spend time meditating on that text and the whole text. Uh, the most famous part of that text is the ending, right? When it gets to all this stuff about reconciliation, and we're going to focus more on the beginning of the text uh, because I think there's some powerful things at the beginning of the text that sometimes we don't see. As a matter of fact, what we're really going to focus on is the first part of verse 14, the first part of the first part. For the love of Christ controls us. That's a phrase I want us to think about. For the love of Christ controls us. What is the love of Christ? Now you've got to do some biblical interpretation. You've got to do what some people call exegesis here. The phrase, the love of Christ can mean one of two things. It can mean your love for Jesus. It can mean Jesus' love for you, the love of Christ. It can mean either thing. And when just looking at the Greek text, uh, there is no way that you could say, well, it has to mean this, it has to mean that. The text can be translated either way. You translate, and this is true in English too. You see the phrase, the love of Christ. You can go either way. Greek is just like it. It's a genitive. I don't want to get too carried away with this, but it's a genitive, and you have to decide, is this an objective genitive or a subjective genitive? The objective means my love for Christ. Christ is the object of my love. The subjective genitive says Christ's love. Christ is the subject. Christ's love for us. It can go either way. And uh, you may say, I'd like it to be my love for Christ. Or you can say, I'd like it to be Christ's love for me. But you can't just pick the one you want. 
The question you ask is, what was Paul communicating to the Corinthians when he wrote this? How did Paul want the Corinthians to understand it? So however you interpret this text, it's got to be based in the text. It's got to come forth from the... You can't just say, here's what I want it to be. And so we look more carefully at the text, and we see, are there hints in the text? For the love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all. There it is. That's all you should need in the context to know whether that's an objective genitive or a subjective genitive, that one has died for all. But let's not stop there. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. Now, when you read this text and look at this text, you can see that Paul intended for the Corinthians to understand this as a subjective genitive. It's Jesus' love. Three times in the context, Jesus died for us. The great act of love is to die for someone else. Jesus died for us. So what Paul is talking about here it's not our love for Jesus, and we're called to love Jesus, but so often American religion runs to what we do. And if we would vote on this, we might say, well, what I want is an objective. I want to be the lover. But no, no. Christ, here he says, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded one died for all. See, they've made that conclusion. You are loved by Christ because he died for you. So you can see it in the text. You look in the text and you say, ah, I've got three big reasons, three affirmations of Christ's death for us, the Corinthians would say. And not just for us, but for all people. Now let's be clear. Jesus Christ died for all people. Not just for some. And not just for a group that some theological system might say, these are the elect. But he died for everyone. He made possible salvation for every person. And that's why churches like ours, like-minded churches, believing in the gospel and keeping the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center, are churches that proclaim the gospel to every socioeconomic group, to every racial group, to every cultural group. And we seek to have churches where people from any background come and become brothers and sisters in the family. See, he loved us. He loved us. And not only that, there's, there's another reason you can, you can move beyond the text to the larger context, and you can understand that Paul understood. This is the way Paul talked. Clearest place, probably, he says, this is Romans 5.8. God 
demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See that thought? That Christ died for us. And in Christ's death on the cross for us is God's demonstration, God's proof, God's showing that he loves us. And so when Paul writes, the love of Christ controls us, he means Christ's love for us controls us. Now it's interesting, I think a lot of you have the ESV. And that ESV translation says the love of Christ, right? Uh, more and more new translations, though, are translating this, Christ's love controls us. Christ's love for us controls us. Because it's very clear that that's the way it should be translated. Uh, and a lot of translations now uh, are kind of making that translational move for us. Uh, the, uh, the NIV, for instance, has done that. But you need to remember when you go to this text that it's talking about Christ's love for us, for you. We've concluded he died for all. He died and rose again on our behalf. Christ loves us. And in Christ's great love for us, the, the, the next piece about this is that his love is what controls us. This is, this is just absolutely uh, life-transforming. And we pray that one of the things that will happen today is not only will we hear God, but it will transform our lives. And for you now to see that what controls you, uh, what guides you, uh, what drives you, what fuels you, what motivates you, what urges you on is Jesus' love for you. That's where it comes from. We, an automobile is made for a while. One of these days it's going to be all electric, maybe, and it won't be the case. But right now, most automobiles are made to run on gasoline. You, as a human being, made in the image of God, were made to run on God's love for you in Jesus Christ. And that's something we don't hear enough. See, the love of God for you in Jesus Christ is the first word of the gospel. The love of God for you in Jesus Christ is the source of the gospel. It's where it comes from. It's the foundation of your life. Everything in your life, if you're, really, if you're really in sync with Christ in the gospel, everything in your life is going to be done uh, as a result of your motivation to live this way because you are loved by God in Jesus Christ. And see, it's, the text goes on to say, uh, he died for all, Second time he says that in verse 15, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him. Because you are so loved by God in Jesus Christ, you now are liberated, set free to live for him. 
He set you free to have a lifestyle. You don't have to hoard it for yourself. You don't have to seek it for yourself. You don't have to accumulate. You don't have to try to get God to approve of you. You don't have to try to earn salvation. It's all yours. And because it's all yours, now we live for him. And you cannot live for Jesus Christ unless you know and experience his love for you. It's the key to everything. It's so key to everything. Let me tell you this. I got goosebumps right now. The greatest thing you will ever know, the greatest thing you will ever, the greatest truth you will ever experience is that you are loved by God in Jesus Christ. You are loved by Jesus Christ. And that love that he has for you should control, guide, motivate, fuel everything about you. Your love is a response. Your life is a response to his love for you. And this is the way it is in the Bible. Always. God initiates and humans respond. Religion is made up of people trying to initiate. You can't initiate with God. It comes from Him. He first loves you. He first saves you. And then you are set free to live for Him. It's the way it always is. God, out of His great love for you, has saved you, has demonstrated His love. This is the great truth. Now, you know, it took me a while to really see this. Because, again, I don't think we hear this in the church enough. Uh, so much as you do this, you do that, don't do this, don't do that. The large majority of Americans believe that what Christianity is, what Christians are, it's a bunch of people who do certain things and don't do certain things. Nothing could be further from the truth. Followers of Jesus Christ are people who have experienced God's love for them in Christ and now are seeking to live our lives for him in light of, in the midst of, with the great help of his love for us. The encouragement, it controls us. It fuels us. We're loved. Now you do all these things because you love him. Because you're thankful to him. Because you appreciate him. Because you're loyal to him. Not all this stuff to get his approval, to, 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 to look good, to gain his favor. No, you have his favor. You'll never be more loved than you are now. Never. There's nothing you can do to be more loved. He gave his life for you. Now, when I first, when I first started to grab that, Sorry to say, I've already been through seminary. <laughs> but when, I first, when, I, when this first really hit me, uh, I had uh, a bunch of kids, four kids. And my greatest prayer for my kids was, Lord, 
help my kids to love you with everything they got, all their heart, soul, mind. Help, help my kids. Help my kids to love you. And then I saw this, and that's all of a sudden I changed my prayer for my kids. That was no longer my greatest prayer for my kids. My greatest prayer for my kids became, Lord, help them to know deep, deep, deep in their soul that they are loved by you in Jesus Christ. That's my first and passionate prayer. Help them to experience deep within their soul your love for them. And then once in a while, and Lord, help them to love you back. <laughs> help them to be great. But most important, help them to know and to experience deep, deep in their heart how much you love them, that they are loved by you. And then as a pastor, you know, I used to same, kind of had the same little deal. Lord, help my people to love you like crazy. You know, switch. Lord, help the people in my congregation to know deep, deep, deep in their soul how much you love them. Maybe that's even a bad way to say how much. None of us are ever going to know how much. He, he loves all of us more than we can ever know. But just help them to know that you love them deeply. You know, I, had a, I had a really funny experience one time with this. I mean, it just shows how quickly we can get over to make it what I do. I had this great lady, about 90, was dying. And, you know, I've been preaching this, what I've just been preaching now, you know. Uh, and I went to see her on her deathbed. And she was, uh, she wasn't all there, but she was mostly there at this time. She's dying. And so I said to her, I said, Jean, you love Jesus, don't you? You know, I thought, uh, you know, getting... Trying to, one of the uh, pastors, one of his main callings is to get people ready to die. So, you love Jesus, don't you? And um, I can see her face. And this is 20 years ago or more. She kind of raised her head, popped up with a big smile on her face, says, yes, and he loves me. She taught me more. You can have this in your head, but you got to have it in your heart. It's got to be part of really who you are. And we are loved deeply by God in Jesus Christ. And now we can love others. We're set free to do that. Well, I don't know how long it was after I've been preaching this way. I mean, praying this way. Lord, help my kids to know that you, that they, you, that you love them so deeply. I... Uh, I had a, uh, one, our oldest son, I think, was in sixth grade at this point. Uh, so uh, he's going to be 40 next year. So I've, I've been living this for a while. But I mean, way back then, I did, uh, but I'd started to pray it by the time he was six. I mean, by the time he was in sixth grade. So he goes, he goes on, I'm the pastor of the church, and he goes off to uh, summer camp. And... Uh, they're coming back from summer camp, and uh, part of my assignment as 
dad is, I've got an office, they're coming to the church, and I've got an office in the church, so I'm going to be there working in the office, and I'm going to take him home when he gets there. So I'm in my office working uh, about the time he's supposed to come home, and uh, one of the leaders from the group came in and said, hey, we're, we're back. Uh, your son made us all cry at the campfire last night. And so she left, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. He told them what life in a pastor's family really is like. You know, I'm thinking, what did he say? What happened? And so I'm thinking, you know, I want to know. Not necessarily good parenting, but I want to know. I said, I'm going to give him five minutes on the way home. If he doesn't tell me, I'm asking. So we get in the car, and we're headed home. And we've just gotten started. I mean, we're uh, two minutes in to the drive. And he says to me, Dad, I had an amazing time. And he, the, our kids didn't know we prayed for him like this. I don't, I'm pretty sure. He said, Jesus showed me how much he loves me this week. Exact quote. I said, he did. Big surprise. <laughs> Prayers answered. Um, I said, how did he do that? And he said, well, Pastor Darrell, a guy from another church in another city that I knew, though, a uh, great, great pastor, last night at the campfire, talked about Christ's death on the cross for us, for me. And through his death on the cross, he showed me how much he loves me. And all these years later, he's still living that out. Uh, that God loves us so much. I don't know, and it's, it's, it's not important that you do, but there's uh, I, academic theology is often far, far from the, from the pews in the church. But undoubtedly, the greatest theologian of the 20th century was a guy named Karl Barth. And Karl Barth was a great theologian. Karl Barth wrote more about God than any other human being that's ever lived. He was consumed with knowing God and knowing God from Scripture. Uh, and so he spent his whole life doing this. Uh, and uh, he was uh, uh, from Switzerland. His whole ministry was in Germany and Switzerland. <clears throat> He's one of the few that stood up to Hitler, and Hitler kicked him out of the country because he was really Swiss. <clears throat> and he, uh, and everybody, you can, you can imagine this, back in the 40s, 50s uh, of the 20th century, early 60s, uh, everybody was saying, you've got to go to America. And he would say, I'm too busy studying, thinking, and writing about God to go to America. I won't go. And uh, in uh, 1962, he retired. And so he said, okay, I will go to America. So he came here in 1962, and he went around to a bunch of key uh, seminaries, theological schools in the United States, and he'd go give lectures. He'd give a lecture, uh, speaking his third lang English, his third language. 
and uh, uh, I, I've heard these lectures on tape. Uh, and so he'd give these lectures, and uh, at the end of the lecture, they'd have question and answers. So he gave, he would talk about God, theology, Jesus Christ. One of his key points was you, the only place you can really know God is in Jesus. If you want to know God, you look to Jesus. So anyway, and his stuff, almost impossible to understand. That's one of the reasons why most of you have never even heard the name. And it's okay that you haven't heard the name. Uh, uh, paragraphs, pages long sometimes. <clears throat> very, very complicated stuff. Uh, so somebody, they, they had a question and answer time. Oh, thank you. That's so nice of you. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so he, uh, somebody, they have a question and answer. He given this brilliant lecture. And a student at the seminary, there was all kinds of adults and, and uh, you know, pastors and people, but I think it, it must have been a sophomore, raised his hand and said, Dr. Bart, what's the greatest thing you've ever learned about God? And uh, I can imagine a lot of the people in the room go, oh, my gosh. This guy has got so much, how could he, you know, and... Here's what Bart said. <clears throat> he said, the greatest thing I've ever learned about God is that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible told me so. I think the most brilliant theological statement he ever made. I really do. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Greatest thing, gang, the greatest thing you will ever know. This is what God is saying to you today. You are loved deeply, perfectly by God in Jesus Christ, demonstrated in the gospel, the incarnation, Christmas, the death, Good Friday, the resurrection, Easter. You are loved by God in Jesus Christ. And you will never experience anything that can hold a candle to that truth. And your life needs to be lived out of that reality, that truth. Well, I hope you'll forgive me. This is this is a confession of sin as well as anything as much as anything else. Forgive me. Hopefully by the end of the story you'll see maybe I've changed a little bit. But I have been a, a person, I don't go on tirades, but I'm not a fan of tattoos. Uh, just not a fan of tattoos. Uh, that's negative. I really believe that's sinful and negative about me. Nothing about, sorry about you guys that have tattoos, but I don't mean to indict you. I'm indicting me and just telling you where. But I want to tell you something about that. So my daughter, uh, one daughter, the youngest, marries a guy with tattoos. Uh, this guy is such a great guy. 
you know, a dad, one daughter, nobody's good enough for her. Da, 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 da. Honestly, if I'm a, I have to say to my daughter, I'm not sure you're good enough for him. <laughs> this guy is so terrific. Oh, my goodness. Oh, couldn't have a better son-in-law. The guy is amazing. So I start to soften a little bit, but not too much. And then, and my daughter has a naughty streak in her. She knows I don't like tattoos, and for years, Dad, I'm going to get a tattoo. And she'd always get, ah, blah, blah. Dad, I'm going to get a tattoo. And then it became, hey, Dad, I got a tattoo. I said, you want to see it? I said, yeah, I want to see it. Held out her arm. And her husband, Dan, got the same tattoo. And it said on here, she had written, written out just the reference, 1 John 4, 19. If you know that verse, it says, we love because he first loved us. Wow. I love tattoos now. <laughs> we love because he first loved us. The gospel. Everything Sue and I have been praying for. We love because he first loved us. And what she didn't know was on the inside of my wedding ring and Sue's wedding ring, we had printed 1 John 4.19. She didn't know that. And uh, I'm on my third wedding ring, so it's not there anymore. And Sue, it's totally worn off. We've been married 45 years. So, uh, but we love because he first loved us. That's what this is all about. I want to just conclude now by saying, please hear this. The Spirit is saying this. The greatest thing you'll ever know is that Jesus loves me. Greatest thing. No one experienced this. And help others to see this. You know, you live it out. You don't have to prove anything now to anybody. You, as a son or a daughter of God, are an heir, because God loves you, an, an heir to everything. You are rich beyond measure and are going to experience the greatness of God's love forever. You know, Ephesians 2 says that God made us alive so that he could, through all the ages, pour out his love upon us. Look that up, Ephesians 2. God loves you and is going to demonstrate his love. He saved you to love you, to love you up forever. It's going to be an awesome eternity. And make sure you witness and teach to a gospel that's focused on God's love for them, not what they have to do. They are loved by God. God has done all this. You know, we, we respond to good news. The gospel's good news. Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. 
what God has done in Jesus Christ. And pray. You live it. You witness to it and teach it. And you pray it for the people you really care about. If you really care about somebody, pray that they will know deep, deep, deep in their soul and experience God's love for them in Jesus Christ. Now here's another. Just listen to this. You might want to write the text down, but just listen to this. Don't, don't uh, look it up. Just listen to it, but you can look it up later. Romans 8, 31 to 39. Might be, even over 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 20, might be the passage I would take to the desert island. Just maybe close your eyes even and listen to this. Paul, he, he's, he's finished this great exposition of the gospel in the first eight chapters of Romans. And this is the last thing, this is how he concludes that first eight chapters. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died? Yes, who was raised from the dead, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Just bow. Just listen. What is the Lord saying to you today? Listen to him through these texts. What's he saying? Lord, help each of us to know relationally and experience deep in our hearts, in our souls, how much you love us in Jesus Christ. And help us now to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for you 
your kingdom and your causes for your glory. In Jesus' name.